Folks, we hit the water on you this week. It's on the other side of the room, but we put some chocolate near it to make it um, nicer. So grab some before it starts if you haven't already. Otherwise, Damien would have kept me straight if I had come from my office, but I didn't. This work? I don't. I, I don't. Okay. I got you a, a cap, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to make sure it wasn't a Make America Great. <laughs> uh, is that a Mobius strip? Uh, uh, yeah, pretty much. I did not. No, this is this is. Uh, uh, that's just my thinking. The convoluted. <laughs> Let's see. There, oh, there we go. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, before I get started with a couple of announcements, just wanted to know, did anyone lose a glove? Because I hate losing my glove. It's the worst. Okay. Because then you can't use the other one. It's just like, oh, it doesn't make sense. Okay. 
All right, without further ado, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Um, just a couple of quick reminders. This event, this presentation is being uh, live webcast and recorded for posterity, so keep that in mind as you participate in the discussion. Uh, our following luncheon talk next week on February 21st is Internet Designers as Policymakers with Sandra Brahman, um, Texas A&M University Professor of Liberal Arts. And the following week, February 28th, uh, we have five global challenges and the role of university with Berkman faculty associate Juan Carlos de Martin in conversation with Berkman Klein founder Charlie Nesson. Um, so without further ado, I'll let these two gentlemen take it away. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, I'm Yochai Benkler, for those of you who don't know. I hang around here as faculty. Um, and this is Marvin Amori. And if there is... I don't think there's anyone in the world of whom I can say with greater pride, he was my student here. Um, that's just a fact. Um, uh, no offense to anyone. Uh, <laughs> um, Marvin, uh, Marvin probably led the battle on net neutrality from the first day um, when he led the Comcast suit in the mid-2000s, all the way to the final political battle when he played a central role in conceiving, organizing, pushing, nudging across all sorts of dimensions. And has this is not just me quelling. This is the public record as it stands. Um, uh, really uh, amazing influence on the way in which we all might have, under different political conditions, experienced the Internet. <laughs> um, Pepa, again, absolutely central role as a political, legal thinker, and now uh, is the general counsel of Hyperloop, and has decided that instead of speaking, we'll have a conversation. So we will very quickly open this up to questions and answers as the main mode rather than speaking at and correct me if I'm wrong, you should feel free to ask everything from what on earth does a general counsel do when he gets up in the morning to what is Hyperloop and what specifically will it do on this or that day to which he will respond, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but I also, I'd say, invite into thinking about how we think of the world of Internet regulation in the next four years, which one or two of us may care about, uh, if that's okay. Uh, so... What is Hyperloop, and why should we care? So, um, thank you, Yochai. Uh, Hyperloop, I think most of you know that a few years ago, Elon Musk proposed a new transportation mode. He, uh, he essentially was asking, how do you go really, really fast in a way that we haven't done it before? And so the thinking was, well, let's say you put something on wheels and went really fast. Eventually, the wheels would just blow up from centrifugal force, so you'd have to you have to fly or be on magnets or on air. And once you go fast enough, the air pressure will slow you down. So let's get rid of the air pressure. We'll just have a pod on magnets in a tube, and we'll build a tube between two cities, and we'll fire people between them. Uh, and so the first example he gave was Los Angeles to San Francisco. Uh, his comparison was the high-speed rail that is, has been proposed for San Francisco to L.A., and his proposal was, you know, we could do Hyperloop, and for, in 35 minutes, you could be door-to-door. -door. Now, after that, 
he, he gave the idea, he open sourced the idea, right? No intellectual property in the idea. And several companies have been born to try to build a Hyperloop. And my company has 220 people, three facilities, uh, and sort of an R&D headquarters in LA and a manufacturing facility and test facility in Las Vegas. And uh, it's, an int- it's an interesting kind of moonshot, right? So you've got these, you've got one, this private company trying to do something that's like basic infrastructure or invent a new kind of technology. We spend most of our time trying to invent new components and energy systems in order to invent the final product, right? So it's sort of like the space program. And, uh, and then, you know, we go around the world and we say, hey, you should buy a Hyperloop, Mr. Ex-government official. And then they'll say, gee, how do we regulate this thing? And uh, is it like a train or like a plane? What rules does it fall under? And so, um, so what's a Hyperloop? Why is it interesting? It's interesting because I think it could be, you know, we always make an analogy to the Internet. Everyone does, right? Everything's like the next Internet. But, uh, you know, we talk about it as sort of, you know, connecting cities and connecting sort of neighborhoods uh, in a way that uh, we just haven't been able to do it before, where you could like live in Chicago and commute every day and work in Detroit or vice versa. Um, and, uh, and even when it comes to, you know, if you were in D.C. and you wanted to fly to Paris, rather than taking an hour-long trip to, to Dulles and then flying to Charles de Gaulle and taking an hour-long trip, you can cut those into five-minute Hyperloop trips. You can change the way freight is distributed. It, just, it can really affect the economy. And it's all part of a wave of, uh, of, you know, kind of the future of mobility. Drones, self-driving cars, Ubers investing in flying cars. We just sort of see it as sort of, you know, by the time we build one of these things, mobility will be pretty different. So, so, so let me push you a little bit on that last piece. Yep. Um, Uber, drones um, are all attributes of, um, uh, let's think of it as artificial intelligence combined with physical control of processes Mm -hmm. as the critical change. And that's coming on through a process of uh, generations now Mm -hmm. of uh, increasing computation speed at lower prices. Mm -hmm. Hyperloop sounds like fundamentally uh, the civil engineering component is going to be a major, it's going to take the problem we have with fiber deployment Mm -hmm. and make it vastly more complex. Mm -hmm. So for example, we talk about neighborhoods, the idea of actually, so um, what's the technological, you say you're inventing technologies, what's Mm -hmm. the technological moment? that makes this the moment, and what is it connected to that we can imagine is growing fast enough to matter? Yeah, okay. So um, so the idea of something like a Hyperloop was proposed in the, maybe in the 1930s by Goddard, right, rocket scientist. And uh, the, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about a few of the information processing changes that are necessary to do Hyperloop at scale, and then I'll talk about some of the civil engineering. So the concept behind what we're doing is imagine you're not sending like a giant train from, and I'll just keep using LA to San Francisco. You're not sending a floating train through a tube because the Hyperloop pod doesn't have an engine. It doesn't need an engine. 
the, the motor is essentially magnets on the track that shoot it forward. It's very light. It's almost like a floating bus. Imagine you're shooting buses back and forth. And there are no stops. So if you wanted to stop off in, I don't know, San Jose, there'd be a little turnoff, like a highway overpass, and you'd, you'd deposit there. And all the stations can be a lot smaller and spread out through a city because you're having essentially floating buses instead of a giant train. Now, in order to have the kind of throughput you need with all these small pods being fired back and forth, um, you're not going to be sending them once every 20 minutes on a, on a schedule that you see in the train station. They're going to be fired off once every 30 seconds, almost on demand. And if people are showing up to the Hyperloop station and the Hyperloops, you know, these buses are taking off back and forth to get the kind of throughput you need that you'd have on a mass transit system, right? You need, um, and we have an entire team that's just devoted to like the software controls, um, which relies heavily on artificial intelligence. And just think of it as almost a souped up air traffic control with a lot of autonomous components to it. So the head of our uh, software team is on the Department of Transportation's autonomous advisory regulatory board uh, to try to think through, one, you know, the, air, the air traffic control internally, and then how would it plug into an API so that you can order a Hyperloop, land somewhere, and then plug into an Uber and, and keep going. Right? So the door-to-door -door piece of the communication would be a lot more complicated if you had to hail a taxi or rent a car on both ends. So, that, so that's the software piece of it. And then um, on, the, on, the, on the sort of civil engineering hardware side, um, you know, I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll um, I guess I can give, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't totally know, actually, but I think the examples that I would give, one of our engineers was on the founding team of Tesla, and he helped design the, the battery for Tesla. And the, the Hyperloop would be pretty energy intensive. And so he, I mean, it's his job to invent new things, right? And you see, uh, you know, you read about every day these innovations in batteries, just re reducing the price of batteries, making them cheaper, making them easier, and making them lighter, which, you know, has probably been driven by smartphones. And that translates over into making it easier for Tesla and us. Um, so you talked about talking to government bodies in Europe. Uh -huh. You talked about the issue of... Um, essentially a private company doing something that sounds like it's uh, the space program. Um, how do you think about that as somebody who's spent time on thinking of communications as a public utility or at least as a common carrier uh, on, this, on this trying to harness a public will to do something that is a basic public good? when you find yourself in this company that needs to, on one hand, make all of these basic innovations, think of building basic civil engineering infrastructure, and on the other hand, uh, doing it as an investor-owned company. Are you given up on the state? Uh... <laughs> um, I would never let you down like that, Yochai. So um, when I joined Hyperloop One, I joined uh, as assistant general counsel in charge of regulatory and government affairs. Um, I was then promoted to general counsel. And I didn't even realize when I showed up that for a company like Hyperloop One, uh, 
you know, the, I think we realize the giant challenge we have ahead of us. And it turns out that governments play a pretty interesting role for the company. One, we have some governments that are investors in the company. Right? So SNCF is the French-owned railway. They're an investor in the company. DP World, which is Dubai Ports World, uh, is owned by you know, Dubai. And the strategy of getting governments to invest in the company as investors or sovereign wealth funds is definitely a strategy we have. And you know, our board of directors and our CEO and our CFO, we have, you know, getting the financing and the partnerships with the government uh, is sort of a key thing that we realized we needed to do, just on the sort of the stakeholder side. In addition, like, you know, usually you go to a tech company and the policy guys are like, you know, not that important, right? I remember when I used to be organizing letters and, you know, putting together coalitions and the policy guys would have to talk to someone on the business side and there'd be this discussion. You try to figure out a way to get to their CEO and see if he cared. And uh, in this company, because it's a transportation infrastructure company, um, you know, from the beginning we knew government mattered. They're not only our investors, they're also pretty much our customers, right? We're, we're going to, like, the Finnish government and meeting with, the Minister of Transportation, and saying, hey, you should have a Hyperloop. Here's why you should have a Hyperloop in your country. Here's why we should put the first Hyperloop in Finland. And we, we explain, and it usually has to do with the, the local geography, but there you have this town called Salo that had the Nokia headquarters. Nokia was acquired by Microsoft, and that didn't go too well. So there's this giant headquarters and all these really smart engineers who might move to Berlin or Paris or somewhere else um, once their two-year severance paid by Microsoft through the government is over. So our pitch is, hey, we'll take over the Nokia campus, or something to that effect. We'll hire all these brilliant software engineers to help, to help create our software controls that we need, and we'll build the first test loop in Finland connecting this town, Salo, to another town kind of you know, 40 miles away. We'll get all the certifications, the safety certification. We'll build up some expertise, suppliers, software developers. There'll be a whole ecosystem. The, you know, the Silicon Valley of Hyperloop technology will be in Finland. And so that's the pitch we make to one government. We make that pitch to, to multiple different governments, you know, connecting airports in a way to, to make sure that, the, you know, as airports become more and more centralized in a few hubs, if you were to connect two airports in a country and create a super airport that could compete with the large airport in another country, you sort of have a narrative that you can tell governments. And so, you know, I'm hiring somebody who worked at the State Department and had done a lot of interesting policy work and helped implement the Iran deal, really interesting stuff. Uh, and, you know, I told her, you're going to be helping the business development team, the sales team. Right? So it's kind of an unusual place where the geeky lawyers actually kind of core to both the investment team and the sales team. And then there's obviously the fact that governments are regulators. And so we can't, we can't even try to do what Uber did, which is, hey, we're just putting cars on the street and we're just, you know, we should be unregulated, and then wait for cities to shut them down and then start a fight. We have to actually go in in advance and say, hey, we need permission. We want to work with you hand in glove. And, uh, and there we just copy other smart lawyers, right? We've, we copied Google Fiber. Right? A few years ago, Google asked America, which, which city wants you know, a gigabit of, of, uh, of fiber, who wants speed? And 1,100 cities applied. Kansas City was chosen. And they sort of negotiated certain terms that made it, you know, they didn't get a subsidy or anything, but they got certain terms to make it more acceptable. And we had something called the Global Challenge, where we asked 
cities and pretty much anyone from around the world, academic institutions, private companies. Hey, tell us why, why we should put a Hyperloop in your country. We got you know, hundreds of registrations and about 100 solid applications. We announced 35 semifinalists, but a few of them were submitted by governments. The Florida Department of Transportation submitted a Miami to Orlando route, which is really, really a great route. Um, the, um, the governor of Nevada, along with the congressional delegation, submitted three different routes in Nevada. Uh, and so, you know, we're trying to sort of piece something together. And this is, this is actually kind of interesting and ironic point about government. We had always assumed that we would be, that the first Hyperloop would be abroad and we'd be looking abroad and that the U.S. would be a difficult regulatory environment. And then Donald Trump comes along and says, I've got a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, et cetera, and, you know, and, you know, wants to shake things up. And so people are asking about, you know, maybe we could do one in the U.S. And we're mainly pulling from the global challenge participants to try to figure that out. Cool. Um, I'm feeling like we should open yeah, up the questions. It. And if people are too quiet, I'll, I'll, I'll jump back in with me. Great. Yeah. Uh, the first like, question I Hold on. Uh, is this on? Good. Yeah. Uh, first question I wanted to ask, just because it's you know sort of the conversation that people are having right now towards the um, sort of high-speed train they're building between uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco uh, is just sort of the economics of a project like this. Uh, it's clearly better in terms of like timing. Um, you know, how does something like this uh, compare to something like the train they're proposing to build between those two cities in terms of like costs? Um, it's less. Uh, yeah, so we, we have a business intelligence team that's mainly, you know, hires from folks across the river, right? Harvard Business School students and, and Wharton students, and they do all the, all the math. But their math, you know, um, there are lots of assumptions in it, right? So we're in the middle of inventing some of the technology and trying to figure out how to drive down the costs. Um, and so most transportation projects seem to seem to be overestimated in terms of, uh, or underestimated in terms of the costs. And we're trying not to do that. But, you know, when I asked my engineers, can you build one of these things today? One of them gave me this analogy that I thought was pretty useful. And that is, you know, when, when Elon Musk invented SpaceX, uh, rockets existed. You could see rockets that were going into outer space. And, uh, but, he, but Elon Musk thought they were, you know, 100 times more expensive than they should have been. And so he tried to figure out ways to innovate and just drive down the cost in order to get into the market. And my engineers assure me that they could build a Hyperloop today. It would just be 100 times too expensive for anyone to want to pay for it or to ride on it. And so a lot of what they're doing is trying to figure out ways to you know, have cheaper um, materials that we use around uh, the tube or less expensive power when it comes to sending it off. So the goal is definitely to be cheaper than high-speed rail. We always say, like, oh, cheaper than high-speed rail and twice the performance. But if we can't get to cheaper than high-speed rail, it's kind of a harder uh, argument to make. Uh, can I just throw that was kind of a here? Yeah, please. Because it, it actually connects, because it connects yeah. to the two. So yeah. flight, and, um, flight and cars uh -huh. use existing rights-of-way. Yep. Uh, high-speed rail is dragging along uh, because of questions of expansions of rights-of-way, new parts that need to be straightened. Uh, 
you're probably need to go over land. Yes, uh, or underland. Or underland, yeah. but in any event, you're going to need uh, rights of way from all those people between the points between Los Angeles and San Francisco who have less than no interest mm -hmm. in being fly under or fly through areas. And that's been a problem certainly for high speed rail yeah. in the Northeast. That's a general council question. Yep. So, uh, so two thoughts there. One, we hope that they won't be as disinterested because, you know, we're not loud. We're enclosed. It's a vacuum. Sound doesn't travel through a vacuum. So hopefully it won't be quite as big a deal. Um, and we also need a smaller right of way. Uh, the way it's usually handled when it comes to trains is you, you usually negotiate to put a stop in each town that's mad at you. And so then the train just takes forever because you've got to stop all those times. So, um, uh, what we're looking at is, you know, the initial proposal by Elon Musk was just put it on top of a freeway. You already have a right of way there over the freeway. You negotiate with the government. And if you could just have a straight shot kind of on pillars over the freeway, that would be one way of doing it. Uh, we're also looking at rights of way that, that railroads hold um, or that uh, or that have been set aside for railroads that have been stalled, you know, around the world. And so we're definitely looking at like, so our plan right now is low hanging fruit, right? We need one or two projects we don't need to, to sort of, we don't have like a, 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 an apple of our eye project that we need to get and we'll bang our head against the wall as long as it takes. We're sort of putting our chips widely. And if, if someone steps up and says, we've got, a, as we're talking to them, we've got a right of way, we've got all the things you need, then that, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, like turning the tables what we're trying to do. And so uh, once we have that in place, we're then going to have like a cookbook. Right. Apparently, this is what they did uh, in telecom. So my CEO had been the president at Cisco. And after the 1996 Telecom Act, which you teach and I studied in your class, Cisco apparently realized they had to sell their routers and, and other equipment to the competitors because the incumbents wouldn't buy it. So they went around the world with, here's the cookbook, the 1996 Telecom Act. You should implement this. Right? The CEO and then the regulatory folks did this. And that's exactly my CEO's model. We come up with the cookbook, essentially, by working hand-in-hand -hand with the Dubai regulator or the Finland regulator, and we kind of learn, almost like a lean startup-like learning, lean regulatory. And then once we have that cookbook, we then go around and say, this is what we need. If you want a Hyperloop, this is the framework. Interesting. It's a fun job for a lawyer. It sounds like yeah. it. Am I, I'm not sure if I'm understanding the way this works correctly. The uh, idea is that one company would build, build and maintain the infrastructure, and then all the vehicles would be owned by other people and, or, and companies and organizations, but they would all have to play nice so you don't have uh, wrecks at 450 miles an hour inside your, your tubes? You know, um, I was unclear on both of them then. So... One, I imagine lots of companies sort of being part of the ecosystem to build and operate a Hyperloop system. And two, I would imagine that the control system around the pods would be, it would be more sort of controlled and unified under one operator. So um, let's say, so we've, been, we've done a lot of, it's weird kind of creating a company from the ground up because a few months ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you this, but we've done a lot of thinking about how would you sell a Hyperloop somewhere? Uh, and so, 
you know, imagine you're just sending someone an IKEA manual, like how to build a Hyperloop, pretty pretty thick, and you know, it might say, go buy steel on the open market, this much steel, go buy this much concrete on the open market, All right? Go buy a hundred pods from Hyperloop One, go buy you know a hundred motors from Hyperloop One, and then you buy them, they'd be delivered, and then you put them together. But there'd be some sort of general contractor that is putting it together, buying all this stuff, and we'd be more like a Boeing selling airplanes into the system than the actual organizer of the construction. And then at some point, there's an operator, and that could be the city, that could be the state, that could be a private operator. It's probably not us. We're more on the invention, license IP, sell key components uh, portion of the, of, the, of the value chain. Although is that, is that useful? I, that's very useful, oh. although it raises the question of the Edison company, uh, which is yeah. to say Edison first coming up with a light bulb and then realizing that he ended up having to sell the centralized electric grid uh-huh. uh, because you needed the grid in order to connect the light bulb um, mm-hmm. and ended up being, um, in addition to later on GE, also mm-hmm. being consolidated Edison and all of these things. But mm-hmm. the structure was... We think light bulb, uh-huh. but in fact, it was the entire grid. Yeah. And you described yourself as now, we're going to be in the light bulb business, uh-huh. but we're going to tell you how to build grids. Yep. Edison certainly found that he needed to build grids in several cities before he could get other companies into the grid building business. Hmm. We definitely think that we'll be more involved in the building early on. That's right. And maybe we will <laughs> determine <laughs> that we should be in the grid building business. Um, I think we've always thought of it as we would learn, again, we'd have almost a cookbook for how to build it, and then we'd be able to provide this cookbook to other contractors who could do the building much more quickly so we could scale quickly. But, um, I mean, GE Ventures is an investor in our company, uh, and we rely on them for a lot of advice when it comes to project finance and project structuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can repeat the question because I think people who are listening just whether online didn't. Underwater is feasible, and uh, the example I used was Providence to New York City with no rights of way issues. Cool. So when, when you, if if you were to come to my office, uh, my the R and D headquarters, uh, you would see a drawing that has uh, a water route from San Francisco to L.A. Uh, and there, we wrote a blog post. We have a marine engineer who's trying to solve this exact issue. Uh, and he wrote a blog post about two or three different ways to do it. So one way to do it is you would have a tube underwater that would be on pylons on the continental shelf. Right? That, right? So th- with this strategy, you couldn't connect like the U.S. and Europe because it would get way too deep. Right? But on the continental shelf, you could have these pylons. Uh, the other example, there are a few other examples. One was, you know, sort of weighted, or no, one was tunneled, sort of tunneled under the water, under the, the ocean, the ocean shelf. And the third one just seemed really complicated, like floating with multiple different sensors to try to keep it up. Uh, and so, as I understand it, it's a pretty difficult engineering challenge. Our first routes will not be underwater, uh, even though the government challenges might be lower. Uh, the engineering challenges are pretty high, but you, the blog post is pretty amazing. Uh, 
Uh, you mentioned in the beginning um, when you are talking to folks about this, they're often holding on to either trains or airplanes as sort of the framework that they're approaching this different type of transportation. And uh, in Cambridge and many other places, that's a similar issue we have with bicy um, bicyclists. And um, <coughs> sorry, I'm losing my voice. Um, but been part of talks about redoing intersections and trying to think about bikes as something that's independent of both pedestrians and cars. And so I'm just wondering, from your perspective, it's obviously a very different level of, um, you know, technical needs that go into these things, but if you have any feedback for folks who are trying to advocate for better um, you know, bike legislation in, the, in cities like Cambridge. Okay, got it. Um, I mean, I would... It's interesting because when you, when you come from the Internet world and, you know, when you think about what is Internet law, right, what, you know, and part of it is what do people at Twitter and Google, et cetera, deal with on a daily basis, things like copyright and privacy... Uh, when it comes to transportation law, one of the main things that people think about, bless you, and focus on is safety. Right? So how do you certify the safety of any new or existing transportation system? And you know, we uh, have an engineer focused entirely on safety standards, et cetera. And part of our story is we think we'll be safer because most uh, fatalities uh, in terms of ground transportation are the result of human error, and we're going to be largely autonomous, uh, at-grade crossings, right? So if you're a bicyclist and you're, you have your own lanes and your own sort of world where you're apart, you don't really have crossings with other modes of transportation, which is, I'm guessing, where a lot of the, the harm can be. Uh, and we also, um, we're also kind of weatherproof if we're, if we're enclosed. But, um, but I, would, I would focus on safety. I'd make that the argument. And uh, this... To, to give it, to give a recent example, right? I was talking to some folks about Uber's lobbying, uh, and Uber had largely been popular among Republicans and unpopular with Democrats, partly because of uh, their labor issues. And in one state, and probably in many other states, they're flipping it because they focused really heavily on safety and security. Right? Let's make sure that all the Uber drivers uh, have the have the background checks they need. Would you want your daughter to get into a car with someone who hasn't been vetted? Right. This was their story, and whether it's true or not, it's, it's pretty effective. Um, so I, I take your question as how do I be effective, and so I won't I won't comment on the, the morality of the argument. But I would I would I would use safety as a main argument. And and my answer to the last question actually reminds me. I should actually tell you what it's like to be at Hyperloop One, uh, like the company itself. It's not at all like a transportation company. It's like a whole bunch of people inventing stuff. It's a whole bunch of people like with big, like I don't know, engineering textbooks, trying to come up with different invent, like different physical, <laughs> different ways to apply physics to the challenges we have at the speeds we have. Banking, turning, um, you know, materials in a space with such low low pressure, and it's just a whole bunch of walls covered in equations I don't understand. People, you know, sort of debating over lunch how to do different things, and. You know, someone hates somebody else's motor design, and uh, somebody else has a more brilliant idea for it. So it's very much, you know, it's the, it's more more an R and D company uh, at the moment than even a transportation company. Can I pose you the yeah. question? How many people in the room are law students thinking about their own future careers? I don't want to ask a question. Okay, enough for me to then ask this question. Sure. You've done lots of different things. Mm -hmm. You've been 
counsel at a, a an advocacy group. Uh -huh. You've been a professor. Uh -huh. You've been. Um, uh, I had my own firm. You had your own firm. Uh -huh. You uh, uh, you've been a political organizer. Uh, what's a trajectory of building an interesting life that's not traditional uh, for a large law school? And my apologies to those who yeah. aren't law students in that, but yeah. it looks like half the room is. Mm -hmm. And I bet they'll be interested even if they don't know that they're interested. Yeah. Um, so, I th so when I look at my friends who have had good careers, um, they're people who took giant risks. And if you go to Harvard Law School, you can actually take good risks. Right? I've, I hire lots of lawyers. I've hired like three, five, five lawyers in less than a year. And um, and it, and ha having gone to Harvard Law School makes people think you're probably smart and interesting, and so you can take more risks than other people. And so if I were just to go through like my closest friends in law school, um, you know, one of them uh, dropped out of a law firm and went to the military. Right? He's now a senator, uh, oddly enough. Um, one of them dropped out of a law firm and ended up becoming an FBI agent. Uh, and uh, one of them. You know, I was thinking about his career once. He told me this. He said, I was thinking about my career. And I was like, you know, when it comes down to it, anything you want in life, you actually have to, like, manage and think through, how do I get from here to there? And he moved to the Middle East where he could get a job in VC, which is what he wanted. Um, a lot of my friends, uh, you know, made a move to nonprofit, despite the pay cuts that, that come with it. And, um, and I mean, I've pe often people would, would meet me and say, like, oh, you're a lawyer. That sounds boring. And I was like, I have the one of the coolest lawyer jobs out there. And I almost always did. And But early on, it wasn't. Like early on, I went to Kirkland & Ellis. It was a great law firm. Uh, I had a lot of fun there. Uh, but it was just a big, big firm. And then I took a fellowship with you, which my mom thought was crazy, right? I just sort of gave up this sensible job to go to go write some papers with Yochai. I took a, I took a fellowship in uh, at Georgetown in a clinic, which was also seen as pretty nuts if you're going to be a law professor, as I planned to be, because it was clinical, and so I had to convince people that I wanted to do academics instead. Uh, and then I got a professorship, and I deferred for a year to take a job as the general counsel of a, of a small nonprofit named Free Press. And I just thought these people were really smart. And I remember you thought it was a bad idea. Do you remember this? I don't, yeah. but I trust you. That yeah. sounds right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was actually a bad idea. <laughs> no one had heard of these guys. Um, and that was when uh, I handled the Comcast BitTorrent case. Uh, and Which turned out not to be a bad idea. It turned out to, to, to work out well uh, for me. And I also worked on the Obama campaign, and, and it, was, it, was, it was a fun year. And, um, and so I think a lot of people are just kind of not willing to take a risk. And... Um, and I just wanted to get an telecom. That's what I wanted to do. And it took a few years to get there. And then I kind of had my break with, with uh, Comcast. But, but what I see is, you know, if you're one of those people who like, complains about law school, you're probably, those people end up complaining forever about their job, even though they could easily change it. So, um, so I don't know. Just have a positive attitude. And, uh, you don't enjoy your career in law. It's your fault. It's, That's the message. 100%. That is my message. To, to someone, someone in this room, unless like a tragedy befalls you, or like, um, you could probably take a risk and end up exactly where you want to be.
All my friends who actually made a move to where they wanted to be ended up there. Okay. Questions is it, on that? Is that, is that too harsh? That, no? that, that, that's very harsh, but um, you're in a position to, make, to say it. I have so that's okay. That's um, legitimate. Right. You've certainly taken risks and done okay. many different things over but, time. You're, 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 you're in a position to be entitled to say it. But I would say most of my friends have done the same thing. Most of my friends who are happy, at one, really happy with their, with their jobs and their careers, made that kind of move. And so I was here for my 10-year reunion. And the 10-year reunion was really funny. We were kind of in a room like this. It might have even been this room. And T.J. Dwayne, who was one of my classmates, was sitting here and going around the room asking people what they had done since going to law school. And there was sort of a, a similar trajectory for some people, which was graduated from law school, went to a big firm in New York, hated it, left, did something they loved. Right? It was like repeated. It was just everyone had that kind of path. Um, and the people who, who – everyone seemed pretty happy. No one said they were unhappy. But the people who seemed happiest had taken a sort of risk that you wouldn't expect. So that's an even stronger statement. Uh, right. No, that's okay. <laughs> Just clarifying. Okay. Pushback comments or shifting back to uh, Hyperloop One or other things. Yeah, there's a question there in the back. Um, do you have somebody at the company doing environmental impact kind of assessment? Um, whether to do with emissions or infrastructure, where does that figure in? And also, I was just curious if you had buy-in from the aviation industry in any form or whether you predict they'll see this as an enormous threat to their industry. And um, So we do not have someone full-time at the company doing the environmental assessments. We, we've used outside law firms for that. So on my team internally, I'll just, I'll just t I'll tell you who I have on my team internally. So I have a, an IP lawyer who does all of our patents and trademarks and things like that. Uh, who owns the word Hyperloop is actually kind of a contentious point, uh, oddly enough. So uh, uh, And then we have a lawyer who focuses on contracts. Right? It's, kind of, it's kind of unusual how many contracts we need in our company compared to, say, a software company. Right, if you if you were a developer or a software developer, you would write something up, I guess, and then it would you'd be able to push it to the web, and you wouldn't need to do anything else. Here, they design something on their computers, like a design of some sort, and then we've got to usually pay some vendor to make the device, and then we test the device, and then we send it back, and if the device isn't made well or not made quickly enough, there are issues, right? So there's all these contracts we have, and I've got a poor, overworked chap just working on on all the contracts. Uh, then I've got two people focused on financings because this is pretty capital intensive. One on getting money into the company, corporate financings. So those are you know the people who go to, you know, pretty much every general counsel seems to have a corporate financing background and worked at Fenwick or Wilson Sonsini or Gunderson um, or Cooley. Or there's just a few firms that, that are in all the deals. And I've got three people from Gunderson that I hired. Uh, who all are sort of trained in that way. And then uh, then we've got a project finance person. And project finance is something I didn't know anything about in law school or until recently. But that's sort of financing big projects like solar farms, uh, oil pipelines, uh, airports. Uh, and that's usually done with tons of bank debt from particular bankers who, are, who want a really long-term horizon and get paid back based on 50 years of revenue. So I've got one of one of those. So those are the lawyers on the team, plus two political folks. The former um, 
the most recent chief of staff of the Department of Transportation. I just hired him on to join our team and to help us think through all the regulatory issues. Um, so, but a lot of the other stuff we do out, we do out, 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 out house, right? Not in-house, like litigation. I don't have a litigation lawyer on staff yet. Uh, and a whole bunch of other things I just have outside lawyers for employment, real estate. Uh, and then eventually if we get big enough, I'll hire someone in. Uh, as for the aviation industry, that's a great question. I don't totally know. I've met with a few folks from, uh, from a few of the airlines. I, I think we haven't proven enough for them to, to focus on us. You had your hand up before? But one day, one day they will focus on us, and then I will charm them. Uh, so thank, thank you so much for your talk. Huh. So I, I, I'm a 1L, and I know I recognize a few other 1Ls in the room as well who are currently thinking about career plans. Um, huh. And I know a lot of us, myself included, huh. are seriously considering really want to go into a technology company that's really on the cutting edge, uh-huh. um, as Hyperloop is. Um, and so I was just wondering like, what your career advice would be to someone who's just, like, just starting out. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, the, the reality is I'm also supposed to go to like big law firms uh-huh. or like go to government and that kind of thing. But yeah. like your advice on like how to get to basically where you are and what uh-huh. things that you would do differently perhaps if you had a chance to start again. Okay, sounds good. So I realize I gave an har- a harsh answer. I'm going to give the same answer in the exact opposite light, hopefully, which is um, I now remember what it was like as a 1L or a 2L. And you're sort of, you're like wondering what your career will be like and if you'll have a good career. And it's kind of like, stressful the whole you know it's it's almost like you're overwhelmed with options um and and you want to make sure you choose the right one and what i meant with my previous answer is don't worry about it too much you know take a risk go for it and if it doesn't work you'll be okay um you know even when i offer jobs people i'm like look if the company goes under in two years or something because something goes wrong you'll be able to get a job look at your resume uh, and, and then I, if, I think you can probably take risks. So to be sort of more specific, um, take risks and, and don't worry about it is, what, is the more general answer. Um, uh, and part of that general answer is, you know, obviously do something you, that you really love doing, right? Like I've, I had to find someone who just loved contracts, right? I don't love contracts. This guy Han loves contracts, loves tech transactions, loves the IP <laughs> of portions of the contracts. You know, Laura on my team loves doing equity financing, loves living in a, an Excel doc with cap tables, so loves this. And if you love doing it, you'll be really good at it, and someone will want to hire you to do that. So more specifically, I actually began at a law firm. Uh, and when I went to Kirkland and Ellis, it was always like ranked number one in training or top five in training. And I don't really know if their training programs taught me all that much. Everyone was just so busy that work was pushed down, and uh, I got to do a lot of work. And I worked with really smart people, and I felt like I learned a lot at, at Kirkland and Ellis. And then when I spent two years at um, Georgetown as part of a clinic there, they have, like a, they have a whole bunch of clinics at Georgetown, and this was kind of like the cyber law clinic, but more like TV and communications law as well. There was Angela's shop. Angela Campbell's shop. One of the shops next door was David Vladek. Uh-huh. And David Vladek is just like amazing lawyer. And just sort of watching him and working with him occasionally, I got to, I got to learn a lot. So I, I would pick um, 
firms, it's hard to tell when you're a one or two, like what firm you should be at. They all seem the same kind of, they all say the same thing. Even when they pitch me to hire them, you know, as outside counsel, they say the same thing. So it's kind of hard to pick. You might want to think about what lawyers you also would want to work under and sort of read about and try to think through. It's a lot easier, like for, you know, appellate lawyers are pretty well known. Some corporate lawyers are pretty well known. Um, so just, I would think about who you'd want to work under. And then I think I named a whole bunch of firms that tend to do a lot of startup work. Gunderson Detmer um, is a good firm. Seems like lots of general counsels worked at Gunderson Detmer. They're outside general counsel to a whole bunch of small startups. And you know, if, if I were the CEO of a small company and you were at Gunderson Detmer and you were doing all my work and I was paying $400 an hour for you and I could hire you at a cheaper rate uh, to do the same exact work in-house, that's what happens all the time. And, and Gunderson people are brought in. Wilson Sincini is a great firm. Um, I, you know, I, um, yeah, Wilson, yeah, the firms I mentioned, Cooley, um, Goodwin Proctor is a really good startup firm. I would go to a firm like that, where you're going to be doing startup work for startups, and you're going to be in the scene and everyone will know you, right? If you were interested in doing uh, internet policy, uh, you know, sort of internet freedom work, et cetera, I'd recommend going to EFF, uh, going to New America in D.C., going to Free Press, where, where I worked. EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I mean, these guys have pretty amazing lawyers, really amazing talent, very influential, and you'll get far more substantive work there uh, as a young lawyer than, than maybe anywhere else. But, um, you know, if any, if, you know, I don't even use Gunderson, but I steal all of their lawyers, so um, and I probably owe them. So if, if anyone wants to be introduced to my favorite partner at Gunderson, let me know, and I'll just introduce you to him uh, as a favor to, to him. Uh, he'll get like 20 Harvard Law students emailing him saying, Marvin says you're awesome. So his name is Ward Breeze, if this is being recorded. Um, <laughs> sorry, I stole all your good lawyers uh, recently. So. Um, wow, lots of questions. Yeah. Yeah, so I feel um, in this country we usually think of our transportation systems as uh, primarily government-run. And so I'm just wondering kind of what you foresee uh, the government or the public's role in uh, with Hyperloop going forward in terms of you know, delegating, operating, maintaining, and, and financing of the infrastructure. So... Um One of the things that, that we're doing, which is kind of interesting, is that we're trying to do everything at once. So the levitation team is trying to invent the levitation that's really energy efficient and energy elegant and that works really well. The, uh, Can I just say, yeah. the coolest sentence, the levitation team is trying yeah. to... Just uh. forget about everything now. <laughs> The propulsion team. Going. <laughs> the, yeah, the propulsion team is you know trying to build the propulsion system. The uh, the tube team is trying to build an efficient tube. Uh, uh, the braking team, uh, the energy team. Uh, so so all the teams are trying to invent all this stuff immediately. And uh, while that's going on, the government and regulatory and legal team is trying to come up with the legal framework and how to interact with governments. And at the same time, the business development team is going around trying to sell a Hyperloop. And one of the things that's interesting is they're all kind of, um, they're all interrelated. So when we talk to governments about what their appetite is, what they'd want to do, and you know, some, in some places, the idea is the more private money, the more private operation, the better. In other 
excuse me, in other places, the notion is, of course, this is a government-run um, function. And uh, it's kind of fascinating because we're, t- we're talking to 